Hello and welcome to episode 21 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the ancient ziggurat, Shane Beeps. It's me, very ancient, very glad to be back here with y'all. Missing an episode felt like missing a close friend's birthday, missing a sunset. Missing your son's birthday. Missing the flight of a baby bird. No, it's good to be back. Glad to be here. Good to see you. Also with us here in Chicago, the noble hierarch, Dave Harburger. I've never got to cast one of these in paper. Uh, all I can say is, now that Jane's back, I won't get to talk as much. <laughs> we kind of overlap. Last but not least, it's the deputy of detention, Zach Culhan. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a very good card, by the way. I don't, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of that. It's pretty good. Best Vidalkin ever printed. Ooh, um, hmm. What about Dovin Bond? No. <laughs> He's not. Well, it, his creature tape doesn't read that. Okay. On this week's episode, The People Have Spoken. We're doing a deck dive on modern humans, how to play it, how to beat it, and how Gaddock got his groove back. We start the show with a breakdown of a couple modern decks that have the internet buzzin', then we'll close with a wind down of a listener question. But first, some housekeeping. We want to send a special thanks to Antique616 from Sweden for leaving us a very friendly review on our iTunes page. We appreciate very much. I'm sorry we don't speak Swedish, but I think it's really cool to have another fan overseas. European tour coming soon. Yeah, our first live show is clearly going to be in Amsterdam, Ooh. which I know is not in Sweden. Don't don't send me letters. I was thinking we could do a Viking River Cruise and do a yeah, Magic Cruise. Oh my God, you guys. I would love to do a Viking River Cruise so much because I know it's just full of like old rich people. It's amazing. <laughs> I looked up the price, though. Do you guys know how much that is? How much a Viking I'm gonna River Cruise I'm going to guess a grand for a three-day. If it you is, have to ask, you can't afford it. It is like $750 a night. <laughs> Per night. <laughs> that seems worth it. I'm going to have to sell all my moxes for this river cruise. In other news, we are super pumped to announce that our Patreon is finally live. Yes. You can check it out for yourself at patreon.com slash the dive down. All one word. We realize that not everyone can support our podcast financially, and that is a-okay. It'll always be free for everyone to enjoy. But enough of our listeners have asked about ways to support the dive down, and we've been working really hard designing tiered rewards to give back to the fans who decide to throw us some bones for making the show. So if you're into sleeves, play mats, deck boxes, pins, other swag, we've got a fun selection of thank you gifts for everyone who helps us make this podcast. Again, you can find our page at patreon.com slash the dive down. Together, we're going to make something great. Yeah, and also, you know, Stan mentioned a bunch of different things that we have in the works design-wise, and um, what we think we're going to do is we're going to show multiple designs to the community and p to people who want to come and check out our Patreon page and participate on the Patreon page uh, to help us decide which pieces to actually get made. Because, you know, we got a little bit of time until we get to tier goals or anything like that, so we figured why not uh, have the lovely members of the Dive Down Nation participate in choosing what we do. Yeah, so we're working, Dave, overtime right now, designing sleeves, some deck box ideas, some more pins, some stickers. So you're going to see this creative guy at work pretty soon, actually already. Yeah, and you can find a link to that Patreon in the show notes of this episode as well. Yeah, so 
if if you have been asking us to do a Patreon, you've been listening to us for you know twenty one weeks now. Support us. We need your support. We really want to push hard. Uh, this Patreon, the first few weeks, we want to be able to hire an editor. We want to hit some stretch goals. We want to get stretch goals in everyone's hand. So we're really excited. We hope you are too. And we'd love to have your support. So these first few weeks, you're going to hear us mentioning the Patreon. And we don't want to bug you about it, but we do want your support. And we want your help to keep the show going and to make it even better. Now with all that out of the way, hey Zach, you comboing off over there? Oh yeah, it is the new hotness, Dan. Yeah, what's it called? Neoform. Das is good. Yeah, what's up with the callback to like sprockets? There. <laughs> That's older than you. It's like the old, it's way older than both of these two. <laughs> I thought I was quoting the big Lebowski's. We exactly. believe in Neoform Lebowski. <laughs> yeah, we, we are nihilist. Oh, Paul Clay was one of the, my favorite Neoformists. <laughs> <laughs> you talking about Andrew Dice Clay? Yeah. Oh, well, it's his uncle. Okay. <laughs> so usually on the breakdown, as you know, we cover a top eight or the results from a tournament. But this week we're doing something a little different and touching on a handful of decks that caught our eye over the last week or two. And decks that we've seen people talking about all over the modern subreddit and Twitter. Mm-hmm. A deck that's been the talk of the town for a little bit all over social media, I hear people talking about it at LGSs, is Neoform. So this deck is very similar to Grishelbland, a deck I think we've talked about in this podcast before, which is you're trying to get the card Grishelbrand into play as fast as possible, draw a bunch of cards, get a bunch of life with the card Nourishing Shoal, and ideally either win by swinging a lot or some sort of combo win, maybe with Lab Maniac or Lightning Storm, something like that. So this deck is a play on that in that it's using the card Neoform to transform a card into Grizzleband as soon as turn one. Yeah, that's like the whole idea, right? Is like this is the fastest way to turn one card into another card that what can right. win, that you can win the game. Getting a Grizzlebrand onto the battlefield, turn one, maybe turn two pretty reliably. Sure, and this is big because there's not a lot of turn one decks in Modern. And this deck cannot consistently turn one. It takes a certain special order of cards that we can talk about in a second, but it has the potential to win on turn one, which is not something we see a whole lot. Yeah, I saw some back-of-the-napkin math on... Uh I think it was a comment of an article where someone did the math on like the five cards you need or like the, the or the replacement effect with a uh, summoner's pact. Yeah. yeah. And it was something like 7% is the reliability for a turn one kill, which is still pretty, pretty crazy. High. Yeah. I heard someone say that they felt like it happened 10 to 15% of the time on Twitter, which would be even, yeah. even worse. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's not great. It's not great. This is an absurd deck to watch, by the way, happen on on uh, on stream or something like that. So I know that Zach is going to take us through how it works because it is kind of complicated. Right. So it's powered by the new card from War of the Spark, Neoform. One blue, one green, a sorcery. As additional cost to cast it, sacrifice a creature. The text reads, search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost equal to one plus the sacrifice creature's converted mana cost. And you put it onto the battlefield with an additional plus one, plus one counter on it. Shuffle your library. So essentially, you sacrifice creature on the battlefield, grab a creature that has CMC of one higher, and put it into play. So Grizzlebrand is eight mana. So how are you getting him into play? And the answer to that is Allosaurus Rider, a card from Cold Snap. <laughs> your favorite. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, my favorite. I have one of these that's uh, the pre-release promo that I no. think I should probably sell very quickly. Oh my gosh, yes, get rid of it now. Yeah. <laughs> MTG Finance. Just for Zach. It's so wild that Allosaurus Rider is an elf warrior 
It doesn't refer to the Allosaurus at all. It's not a dinosaur? This is before dinosaur was a type. It's like Mantis Rider. Right, but it can't even be beat. I mean, the Allosaurus doesn't figure into the, the power toughness configuration. It's just... Nor, uh, nor does the Mantis. Yeah, no, he, he rides it to the location, hops off, fights, and then, and then fights. gets it back on. <laughs> the Dinosaurus sits passively. It's like yeah. when I used to mess up at Golden Axe and jump off of my little dragon guy by accident. Huh. <laughs> it's exactly like that. You know what's really important, though, is that with Neoform giving uh, Gristlebrand a plus one, plus one counter, he finally is the eight, eight for eight. Well, there's that. We also need to explain what Allosaurus Rider is, because I'm sure that the majority of people did not know what this card was until recently. Uh, I think any janky combo players have known that this card has been out here waiting for something to really mess it up for a while. So this is a card that you can cast not for free, but without paying the mana cost. There is a cycle of these cards in Cold Snap where you could remove two color cards from the same color as the card to put it into play. So Commandeer is the blue one, which we've saw a little bit of and talked about in this podcast, and the green one's Allosaurus Rider. So you remove two green cards from your hand and put it into play, and its mana cost is seven. And that's kind of what you need to know right there. It's seven, so you can neo you can put it into play as soon as turn one, and then neoform it that very same turn to get your Grizzle Brand out. Mm-hmm. So to have this magical turn one, here are the cards you need. Or what would you need to be able to do? You need to make two mana on turn one, and it has to be green and blue. You have to have Neoform. Eldritch Evolution also works, but that's three mana, so you need three mana there. You need an Allosaurus Rider or Summoner's Pact. And then you need two green cards to pitch to Allosaurus Rider. Chancellor of the Tangle is very popular here, because on your first turn when he's in your hand, you're able to reveal it and get green mana. So essentially, you have this two mana, you are able to discard two cards to Allosaurus, sorry, remove two cards to Allosaurus Rider, put it into play, cast Neoform, sacrificing that and getting Grizzlebrand into play. Yes, but there is one thing you're you're missing here, is that quite <gasps> quite often the kill that, that works this way, you need Manamorphose as well to turn double green into green-blue. Sure, that, that is true. There is um the, the fast land from Kaladesh that comes into play on top of the green-blue one, so you yes. can use that. And also uh, the mining land. Yep. Gemstone mine. Yeah. Correct. From what I saw, the deck list that I saw of this, I think only ran eight lands. Yeah, that, that's where they're at right now. It's because they have no other plan other than killing with this combo as fast as possible. And so they're not trying to cast spells. They're not trying to do anything. They're just trying to turn one or turn two, you, Allosaurus Rider, Grizzlebrand, go from there. Right. So with Grizzlebrand out, you pay a bunch of life, draw a bunch of cards. Eventually, you get to your Lightning Storm, where you have essentially at that point drawn every card in your deck so you can play a Lightning Storm and just go ahead and go off. And you can do it right away via Sibian Spirit Guide as well. Yeah. So I played against this deck actually in one of my more recent leagues after the London Mulligan had uh, been removed from MTGO, but someone was still taking it out for a spin. And game one, they just kind of whiffed. They didn't. They didn't get there. Game two, they went off. I think on turn two or turn three before I was able to set anything up, and they just got me. Game three was really interesting, where they, I think they went off on turn two, and I was just like, okay, well, I'm gonna die here. And they drew to six cards left in their library, and then they just lost the game by drawing another seven off Gristlebrand. And so I was curious if maybe they had the Lightning Storm in the bottom six cards of their deck, and if they only run one, or then the Lab Man's down there as well. Maybe they just weren't able to win, and so they just had to lose the game. 
Yeah, so I was really curious. Like, so maybe they just they might have just uh, bricked, and their their payoff cards were in the bottom of their library. That's why one of the tips I did read on this deck was use your free spells. Basically, use your spells to keep you at a multiple of seven, so that you don't so you don't uh, get to uh, having your payoff cards in the bottom one or two of your library. Right. Well, even if they are, that's fine because what happened was. With Grishelbrand and no Labman on the board, if they try to draw seven and they only have six in their deck, then they lose when they try to draw that seventh card. So even if you draw seven with no cards left in your library, in theory, you're still okay. Yeah, so it was it was interesting. Um, it was cool to see. It definitely works. It's definitely really hard to interact with. Right. So Dave had an interesting point earlier about a deck like these that either they... Don't they stop existing for some reason? And either that's because they are banned by wizards, or they're not good enough, and people don't play them. Yeah, it kind of works itself out. Like either they, you know, they show themselves to be like you know forty percent decks, and they're not reliable enough. Like something I'm thinking of is like Bridgevine, where sure. it's, it seems super powerful, but maybe over the course of a few months, people realize it's not as consistent as it needs to be, and so it sure. kind of gets shelved, becomes a lower tier. Something that concerns me about this deck is that uh, the original Grishel brand was softer graveyard hate. If you could have a Leyline of the Void or a Relic, you could potentially get them when they try to dump the Grizzlebrand in the graveyard. This deck, I mean, it, I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't have weaknesses. A lot of decks do. This one probably does. But it doesn't have the easy out of graveyard hate. And it's able to do the combo, con- not consistently, but it's able to do it on turn one and two. So what is able to stop this deck? Disruption seems pretty strong. A counter spell will do it. That's fair. This deck is getting banned. <laughs> well, there we go. I'm just saying. This I've I've seen people talking on Twitter about playing it after after the London Mulligan and finding it still like kind of okay to play. I saw one person on Twitter say that they played this to the to a split finals of an IQ right I recently, saw that too. which was pretty interesting as well. In paper, someone managed to get all these cards together somehow. You know, going to raid their cold snap uh, bulk box, I guess, to get all the pieces that you need. And your uh, your chant, or they've just been sitting with all these broken cards, waiting for the right the right enabler to come along. And I think that's the real problem here is that we can look all of the at all the cards, but Neoform is a really powerful card that I really wish I had stuck to my guns and had as my one of my spoilers during the the War of the Spark preview show that we did uh, a couple weeks ago because uh, that's really the engine that makes this work. Of course, without Allosaurus Rider, it's it's not going to work at all anymore, and so I think that's the most likely ban, but Neoform, I think, is showing itself to be a pretty powerful card. I don't know. I think Gristlebrand should just hit the you know the the ban bin. It does, that card never does anything healthy. It's only designed to do broken things. But wildly inconsistently. Sure. And I think that's the balance that we're counting on with Gristlebrand decks in general. It's like, yeah, they might win on turn two or one even, but Pulling that off is a one in a hundred chance. I think it was seven percent was what we figured for the turn one kill. So actually seven times out of a hundred. <laughs> Who's counting? Me, me right now. Zach, you had a thought on what card you'd like to see banned though out of this deck. Oh, <laughs> I don't think it was because of this deck, but I do want to see Manamorphos banned. If that's what you're talking about. Oh, I thought you were. We had a little discussion about Nourishing Shoal, didn't we? So I think Nourishing Shoal is too good because as I've I've come to believe this as we've done this podcast. That anything you cannot pay mana for is just not for modern. I think fast mana is fine if a little problematic, but f- quote unquote free cards are just constantly doing things that are I find deeply upsetting. And if, whether that's deeply. exiling a card that has converted mana cost fifteen to gain fifteen life at instant speed, whatever that may be, 
But yeah, I, I think that there's just, this deck seems like it's, it's consistent in a lot of small ways that upset me. Yeah, I mean, this deck is just full of cards that break the rules of magic, right? Exactly. Pitch cards... It's got your your Metamorphose. It's got your Chancellor of the Tangle, which is a weird card that people have been trying to do stuff with for a long time. And then it has something that tutors something out of your deck as well. And so it's um. And it's got your, you pay you pay life to draw cards. Yeah, yeah, it's got that in it when you when, when you hit your payoff, and then a, a no mana kill condition and Lightning Storm. Well, right. not no mana, but no mana in the sense that if you get all your Simeon Spirit guys, you get to cast it and then kill somebody. <laughs> Exile three to go ahead and cast Lightning Storm. Yeah. So, wow, it's really fun to see a deck that puts together the best, the worst aspects of Grishel Brand and the worst aspects of Ad Nauseum in a single convenient package, huh? Yeah. What a it's time to be alive. Cool. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we do have Modern Horizons coming up, and we'll see what happens. So, speaking of pitch cards that are maybe suddenly broken or annoying in Modern, um, there was a deck over the weekend that got really popular that is uh, Days Undoing plus Narset Parter of Veils and a number of other cards that have symmetrical draw discard effects that basically make your opponents discard when you have a Narset part of the Veils on the board. We won't talk about this as much today, but since Zach brought up Commandeer, I saw on Goldfish that that card mm. went up $57 in paper. It must have been, been a buyout with like just a few of the most expensive ones just sticking around. Overhype. Now, I did watch uh, Conley Woods play this one on stream for a little bit. It actually seemed like a pretty interesting control deck in the sense that basically how it works is the wombo combo in the deck is you get Narset out. You play some some counter spells and control and try to like watch the beginning of the game. You get Narset out, and then you try to play Days Undoing to make your opponent discard their hand, and you draw seven cards, and they get no, they get one card basically. So you play this kind of card advantage game where you really just kind of attack their hand with all these blue blue cards. Sounds rad. Also seems sweet. So check that out if you want to, too. I've heard decks like that referred to as Blue Ponza, for what it's worth. Oh, interesting name. To move this along, I do want to talk about how my, my called shot from our... The card that was very clearly modern playable got played in modern? Is that what you're going to tell no, me? No, it's not, it's, not it's not very clearly playable. What do you okay. call the respects? Oh, yeah. I think you should take a look through the 5-0 deck list over the weekend if you wonder how clearly playable it was. It's a bunch. Yeah. Karn, it's a the bunch. Great Creator, I think was in five different archetypes that I saw on the first 5-0 yeah. list. This is like when Bloodbraid Elf got unbanned, though, right? Like, she was in all sorts of decks. So we'll see how it pans out over time. But um, this one has some tournament chops. So at fourth place deck at this last weekend's Modern Classic at SEG Richmond, um, Adit Fons, Fonse, apologies if I'm saying your name wrong. I'm sure I am. Uh, he brought the new Karn, the great creator, to uh, the tournament in a green Tron shell. So he brought all four uh, Karn the Great Creators. And to make wow. room, he looks like he shaved an Ulamog, a Walking Ballista, a Relic, and a World Breaker. Um, weirdly, they are also running a main deck Surgical. I mean, maybe not so weird anymore. And they've gone down to like two main deck O-Stone. And they're running a Blast Zone in place of the Fifth Forest. So the Wishboard package appears to be a Grafdigger's Cage, a third Relic of Regenitus, a Crucible of Worlds, an Ensnaring Bridge, a third O-Stone, a Trinisphere, a Witchbane Orb, and a Mycosynth Lattice. Yeah, it's a stack of cards, buddy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that stack of cards. To, to make room for this, they shaved down to two Nature's Claim, two Thought Not Seer, two Thrag Tusk. And they don't have any some of the, any of the typical staples, like any Spatial Contortions, Warping Whales, nothing like that at all. Um, 
So this answers the question of that I had two episodes ago of how you might alter your sideboard to make room for this wishboard. So I don't know. I, I mean, we didn't see any of this play out, but they did get forth the classic. Is this the future of Green Tron? A uh, new branch of the tree? I don't know. I'm excited to find out. I've got some of the great creators on the way, and I need to pick up some of these expensive artifacts, though. Yeah, I still haven't bought the latest. It was in my cart today, but I decided that 30 bucks was too much. We'll see if I come to regret that. So I actually... Took a I took a slightly modified Green Tron build out this last weekend in a league. So I brought in two Karn the Great Crater and only had three Wishboard cards in a Trinosphere, an Ensnaring Bridge, and a Mycosynth Lattice. And I don't really think that was enough of a Wishboard, probably, but it was just kind of me testing things out. I definitely need a lot more testing to see how I feel about it. And the only really fun time I got to have with Karn was in a game one versus Spirits. I was super dead, like totally dead on board, didn't have a lot of outs, but I was able to cast the Karn the Great Creator, wish for an ensnaring bridge and cast it. And then the opponent just straight up scooped. And that was, that was worth it just for the fun of experiencing that. But by and large, uh, I don't think that was enough cards. I don't really know my hate artifacts well enough to know when the best time to get them is, when the best time to use them is, what I even want in there. So I think I'm going to have to learn from the community and from experience playing. So it might make Tron a deck you have to actually have to think about playing? <laughs> Man, you're telling me. That's why I enjoyed humans so much this week. Not to, not to spoil it, but yeah. Having to think about stuff is somewhat challenging. At one point, Shane said that we could teach your infant son how to play Tron by just keep teaching him what hands to keep. Basically, there you go. The one-year-old or the three-year-old? The one-year-old. <laughs> no, one, the three-year-olds aren't infants, Dan. What? The, the three-year-old gets uh, eight whack. And <laughs> bolt you, bolt you, bolt you. That was that was a tournament, a, a very quick tournament show up of the new uh, great creator in Green Tron. So we'll see how that pans out over time. Seems like this card is totally legit and ready for action right now. Seems yeah. like a really annoying thing to have to think about as a as a player who's probably never going to play this card um, because it's in so many different shells and just uh, trying to be prepared for sideboard hate in game one seems like not so fun. Yeah, tutorable sideboard hate. As we as a podcast start gearing up for the Sleeve Believe Heave episode, I'm really keeping an eye on all of the cards that are entering modern because I'm getting an early feeling that War of the Spark is going to have an above-average impact on the format than other standard sets. I don't know if any of you are picking up on those vibes as well. We'll see. It's a little more than I thought, but I think that we, when we talked about our spoilers, we kind of all said the Planeswalkers are going to be hard to figure out how much of an effect they, they really have in a vacuum. And also with the static effect being there too, it was even more difficult. So I feel like, for example, Karn was pretty clearly good because it has some main board, main deck hate plus this kind of tutoring ability. Narset, part of Avail, showing up with a bunch of hype was a bit more surprising. And I think that there's probably going to be two or three more kind of that tier of Planeswalkers where people are just surprised to, to have it come into play. I have heard people say that Narset is better than the three-drop Teferi in Modern. I think time will tell, but I am hearing that take online. Zach Allen said that on Twitter, I believe, uh, was who I saw said. Oh, that's where I heard that take then. Besides Shane, have either of you two played any games with new cards yet? Um, I've played a little bit of Mono Red Prison with Karn the Great Creator, and I've found him to be quite enjoyable. Yeah, he's fun. I only play fair decks, so I'm not using new cards. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, that wraps up the breakdown for this week. 
We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're diving into humans. The deck, not the people. Stay with us. And we're back. Humans. We are them, and they are us. But how well do we really know them? And this is a very important modern deck, and it has been for a couple of years. Yeah, it's killing it. Humans has always been pretty strong. It's only gotten stronger. Yeah, so Humans has really been around since like 2016, 2017, right? There were Sounds some right. very early iterations that I think most people forgot about, but I think it's interesting to look at what they where it came from originally. Yeah, so the Humans tribe first got support way back in original Innistrad, but... There wasn't a, any sort of real cohesive modern deck for a long time. That came with Shadows over Innistrad with Thalia's Lieutenant. So Thalia's Lieutenant is a 1-1 one, one for 1 and a white, and it's a human soldier. When Thalia's Lieutenant enters the battlefield, you put a 1-1 one, one counter on each other human you control. So it enters the battlefield and puts a 1-1 one, one counter on your whole team if they're humans. Yeah, so that's pretty good right there. Right, and then even better, it has the Champion of the Parish effect. Whenever another human enters the battlefield under your control, you put a 1-1 one, one counter on Thalia's Lieutenant. So early builds were these sort of green, white, or Naya builds that were looking just to dump your hand, play a bunch of humans, and pump your team with Thalia's Lieutenant and Mayor of Arverbrook, which is used in a lot of early human builds. Were they using Kessig Malcontents as a finisher as well? Uh, not at that point, no. Surprising, because that's from the original Innistrad. Didn't even take a lot of creative thinking to use. Yeah, that card did not really uh, catch on until more recently. Okay. So the deck began as this sort of tribal zoo, dump your hand, swing with your big team. And then over time, it began to evolve into more of a synergistic tempo uh, build with Click to Company and Noble Hierarch. So this build is where we get to see Mantis Rider because you can play it off of either Click to Company or the mana made by Noble Hierarch. Yeah, turn two Mantis Rider, pretty powerful. Exactly. It's totally insane to have a 4-4 haste vigilance. Yeah, it's super nice. Right, so that is so good, in fact, that the mana base begins to change for the deck, too. And you see it moving away from sort of the classic modern fetch shock build, and you see lands are capable of producing all five colors. So Ancient Ziggurat, Cavern of Souls, Mana Confluence, and City of Brass are all being played at this time. Around this time is when the deck begins to experiment with spell colors as well, so it's running non-human creatures, too. So I, I didn't really realize that this happened at one point in time there, which is pretty interesting do you think that this is an indication of people who are playing the deck feeling like the disruptive creatures are what are really, really interesting to have and not just the aggro? Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think we're going to definitely touch on that later, why the disruption is so powerful in this deck. And the next big upgrade for this deck is also a disruptive card as well, with the printing of Kitesail Freebooter Nixalon. So we, from Nixalon, we also received a mix between Ancient Ziggurat and Cavern of Souls with Uncharted Territory, which allowed you to name a creature and tap for mana of any color, but also tap for uh, colorless mana in general as well, which Ancient Ziggurat does not allow you to do. Yeah, that's an important addition for sure. I remember when Uncharted Territory was spoiled, and I, at the time, I couldn't believe that it was that uncommon because it seemed like such a powerful effect. Yeah, they decided to, uh, the, the rarity gods decided to give us a break on that one because that could have probably been a $15, $20 rare. Oh, easy. Totally threw us a bone. Yeah, so that's where the deck really begins to coalesce into the humans deck we know now where you're playing efficient threats you're playing efficient uh, disruption cards and there's also has this tribal backup and most recently the ravnica has had an effect on humans as well two cards from the, that block that are seeing play are knight of autumn which sees play in the sideboard and then uh, deputy detention which sees play in both the main and side yeah it's just one of those things 
whenever a new human comes out, you have to look at it and say, you know, does this have a slot in humans? And they're always they're going to keep making humans because we are them. Well, those two cards we just named aren't e- aren't even humans, though. Yeah, interesting. Like the deck is so is so efficient at this point that yeah. if you're a human, absolutely consider it. But if you have a really good ETB effect, also consider it. For sure, yeah. And there's so many creatures or spells now that these kind of decks can just capitalize on all of that. Right. So we've been talking about history, but now it's time to talk about the reality of things. Humans is a is really powerful aggro tempo ish deck at this point, and so. What it is doing, it uses a combination of like these aggressive, disruptive creatures backed by tribal lords, and it wants to just beat down the opponent while disrupting their own game plan, their, the other the opponent's game plan. And so, you know, it's really common to hear people say that it's currently the best tribal deck. But we're, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what a, is it about humans that has so many people singing its praises. Humans' power really can be broken down into three aspects, right? So it has disruption. It has finishers and heavy hitters, and it has flexible and useful utility cards. Yeah, so I think disruption and the cards that are disruptive are really what sets this deck apart in terms of viable tribal decks. So I think the vast majority of tribal decks that people try to build in modern, whether it be you know something like vampires, goblins, not including eight whack, and you know your homebrew thalid sapling tribal decks, why these decks aren't consistent or can't hang out in the upper tiers is because they lack a way to interact with your opponent's cards, to interact with cards in their hand, with their spells in the stack, or destroy what they have. Yeah, like a lord does not a tribal deck make anymore. Exactly, exactly. So the vampire tribal deck that you see, you know, people post about their casual deck, that has a way to steal creatures or destroy them, but it, it takes creatures to do it. So the card that does it costs three mana and then requires you to tap creatures. And there's, you know, Saperling cards and Thalad cards that sacrifice a creature, give a creature minus one, minus one. And that's good, but not what you need in modern. You need a creature to read sacrifice, destroy a creature or something like that. It needs to be more efficient. You can't rely on you having a packed board state to get value out of your tribe. Unless you're playing elves, but that's for another episode. Right, but that's totally different, though, because they have a critical mass. They don't need the disruption because they're dumping their hand. Totally. So what cards does the humans deck have that allows them to be disruptive and play on an axis that other tribal decks can't? This list is so long, it just makes you realize why the deck is so good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the fact that they're all like two mana. Yeah, everything's so reasonably costed. Um, Can I talk about one of my favorites? I'd be upset if you didn't. Okay, so um, let's just go straight into Thalia, Guardian, Guardian of Thraven. So she's she's a classic. She's been around since, what was that, Dissension? No, that's that, what's the one after Innistrad? Dark Ascension. Oh, that's okay. Thank you. Not Dissension. Ascension. There's Not also Dis- a set called, called Dissension. That's an old yep. one. <laughs> so <laughs> she's, from, she's from Dark Ascension, which is in the Innistrad block. And so, you know, most people know what she does. She's one in a white. She's a 2-1 first striker. And what she, the important thing she does is for non-creature spells, um, they all cost one more. So this is a symmetrical effect, but since the only non-creature spell you typically have in your deck is Aether Vial, that it's not really a big deal to you, and it can be a big deal, big deal to your opponent. So it can set, you know, set the opposing players back a turn or two, and a single turn in modern can be the difference between winning and losing. So winning your direwolves is really important. And something that I want to make a note on of this too is that when you're on the draw, you can think about 
shaving some Thalias because she can lose a lot of value if you're not playing her before your opponents are casting their cheaper spells or their more important spells. So that's definitely something to keep in mind where a 2-1 first striker is not always going to be that uh, impactful. Yeah, the next disruption spell we want to talk about in Modern's fleet is Deputy of Detention. And I'm pretty excited to talk about it because it was one of my picks back in the day when we were doing early picks for Ravnica Allegiance. Though at the time, I did not expect it to show up in humans because it is, in fact, a Vidalcan wizard. Got them six fingers. And 15 toes. That's not that's non-canonical. <laughs> in, in Stan's co- imagination, 15 toes. On each foot or combined? I've been writing a lot of Magic the Gathering fan fiction, so in my mind, it is strictly canonical. Okay. You spent a long time in Kaladesh. I really love that series. <laughs> so Deputy of Detention has a very powerful enter the battlefield effect, which is what allows the human deck to play it despite the fact that it is not in fact a human. For those who don't recall, Deputy exiles a target non-land permanent and opponent controls and all other permanents with the same name until the Deputy of Detention leaves the battlefield. So it's a great way to really blow out your opponent when they least expect it, because if they have a couple goyfs, if they have a bunch of tokens of the same name, if they just are playing humans and they have several Thalia's lieutenants out on the board, a couple champion of the parish, it can really turn the tide in a stalemate when you're basically butted up against a board full of creatures. Yeah, and the fact that humans runs Aether Vial, which is a card we'll talk about in a little bit more detail soon, makes this a really flexible, tricky play that can turn the corner when your opponent least expects it. Mm-hmm. So another similar card to Deputy of Detention is Reflector Mage. Now, this one actually is a human, and everybody knows this card was so good that it was banned in Standard at one I point f- I in time. I forgot about that. Surprisingly, a uh, and it's basically a Mana War right? Except for it's a mana war that says, has the additional line of text that says, you cannot cast this card until the beginning of your next turn. So oftentimes, it's a huge tempo play where you have someone pick up Reflector Mage, you bounce somebody's card with your Reflector Mage, then they have to sit with that card in their hand for an entire turn after that, and then they get to cast it again. It's uh, So it's three mana, it's one blue-white, and it's a 2-3, so it actually has a pretty big toughness that you can build off of with mm-hmm. tokens and things like that. Let you block, you know, Noble Hierarch oftentimes lets you attack in with it. You know, sometimes you get lucky. It's got that kind of um, X slash X plus one power toughness, so it can, you know, it's kind of like a little Tarmogoyf that bounces stuff sometimes, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think this card really showcases the tempo-based nature of the deck, yeah. where you can often sort of get into locked stalemates or the board can kind of gum up. And this is a card that will come down and just push your whole army right through and allows you to then have your opponent on the back heel as you push them right over. Yeah, it, it does absurd things. And I, I don't think any of us would be surprised that it's become really a staple in these kind of human or, uh, creatures as spells decks within modern. So Reflector Mage does have a line of text that your opponent can't cast that creature until after your next turn. And what we're going to talk a lot about in this episode is how important sequencing is in this deck. And Reflector Mage, I think, is a really important card to illustrate how critical sequencing can be to the success of this deck and where some of the corner cases for individual cards may be. So, for instance, if you violin a Reflector Mage on your opponent's end step, your opponent can recast that creature that you bounced back on their next step since you've already had a turn for the Reflector Mage text to resolve essentially yeah so hopefully you're presenting lethal if you're doing something like that right 
So moving on to the the next sort of disruptive element, Zach mentioned this card earlier. I think it really is one of the most important cards that push this deck into its current power level. And it's kind of unassuming. It's just a duress on a flying 1-2 body for two. So one in the black, Kite Sail Freebooter. One in ETB, so you get to look at your opponent's hand and select a non-creature, non-land card, and you exile it until Freebooter leaves the battlefield. And so, yeah, I mean, it just does so much. It gives you information about your next turn sequencing. It lets you know what to name with Meddling Mage, which we'll talk about in a second. I don't know if this is exactly the glue that holds the deck together, but it is incredibly powerful. And I think that uh, a lot of times people ask, like, what's keeping vampires from being a deck? Or what's keeping so-and-so tribal deck from being a deck? And it's a card like this. It's a duress. Yeah. It's a card that has an efficient, disruptive effect. And it's evasive. It's a one-two flyer. And it can get pretty pumped up. And it can really get in there and can change the game around. Yeah. I mean, I I remember really clearly watching the tournament that uh, Zansayed and Collins Mullen first brought humans to an SCG and kind of went crazy with it. And the commentators were kind of like, this is amazing. What is this deck that we're seeing? And it really it was right after Ixalan came out. And so some of that is certainly meta-dependent, but definitely Unclaimed Territory and Kitesail Freebooter were the, really felt like the final push that put the deck over the top because it gave a totally new way for someone to attack the hand of their opponent via creature spells. And cheap, a cheap way to do it. Yeah, cheap, aggressive, proactive disruption. So another important rules interaction that has come up a lot for me personally at the LGS level is what happens when a freebooter is killed in response to its ETB ability. So the really quick answer is the freebooter doesn't get to duress the opponent, but the freebooter's controller still gets to see their opponent's hand. Yeah. And seeing that hand really lets you set up uh, something like Meddling Mage. Meddling Mage, I think, is one of the most interesting and really skill testing cards especially for a new player and i think uh all three of us uh, zach stan and i all were able to run some leagues and i think we were all newbies with the deck is that correct yes playing meddling mage against you know even a deck you know you don't really always know the correct card to name and so what what meddling mage does it's basically a blue white hate bear it's a two two for two and it allows you to name us a, a spell any spell as it resolves and then that spell cannot be cast either by you or your opponent it's a symmetrical effect and so meddling mage really requires you to sometimes name a card in the blind you don't know if the opponent even has it in their hand right and so that really requires you to have a knowledge of their deck the cards they're going to be running what's going to mess with your game plan the most and so that's really a great one to punch with freebooter because you know the contents of their hand um, or if you reflect or made something back then you can name that card and they're unable to recast it and so you know like uh, an example i have from this weekend's testing uh i i kite sail freebooted uh it was a druid combo deck devoted druid combo deck and so i cast a freebooter i see the, the three a- action cards in their hand next turn i cast a meddling mage the turn after that i cast a phantasmal image and i aether vial in a second phantasmal image i name all the cards in their hand they are out of luck it's pretty brutal yeah that is brutal it's nice when you have that information you can see their hand but i think this is a card where really knowing like the rough makeup and the rough numbers of cards in a deck can be helpful. Because sure. say you're playing an opponent and you know that they have four lightning bolt and two fatal push for whatever reason in that build. 
even if you've already seen one lightning bolt, it might be more prudent to name that because they have three copies of that left and two fatal push. So just knowing sort of stock deck list really comes into play here. And I found myself constantly going, all right, this is control, you know control, they probably run four Jace and two Teferi, so here, maybe try to name Jace, and then sometimes they just have the Teferi and that's how it goes, but it, it really comes down to trying to maximize the potential of your hit and hit them and hit the most cards possible and the most impactful cards. For sure. An important rules interaction to remember with Meddling Mage is that naming the card is not an enter the battlefield effect. Rather, you name the card as it enters play. So, for instance, if the meddling mage controller names lightning bolt, you can't bolt in response to the controller naming that spell. Yeah. So you can tell that it doesn't use the stack because it doesn't use the magical triggered ability words of when, whenever, or at. So as is not one of those three words. It's not a triggered ability. Yeah. I, um, a fun parallel we can draw here and a little tip is the card Sorcerer's Spyglass, which is similar in that you can name an activated ability. How this works is, once again, as it enters your naming, it's not an effect. So with that card, you can name fetch lands that are on the battlefield. Your opponent doesn't crack them in response. Yeah. So a, another fun little thing where it's, hey, like there's a, like I'm casting this card. You have to respond now because after it's in play, you don't get priority again. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's interesting that you have a Sorcerer's Spyglass because, I mean, there's another card in this deck that actually behaves the same way, and that is Phantasmal Image, mm-hmm. which is, if it doesn't target in the way that if I put it, if I cast Phantasmal Image, then somebody can get rid of the target, and then the Phantasmal Image fizzles or something like that. You name the card that you're copying as it comes into play, which is the way that most clones work these days. But So there's there's two cards in this deck that actually behave in that, that kind of strange way. Yeah, but Zach went back to his red prison, uh, his red prison pedigree for the example. So speaking of phantasmal image, there's a couple of cards in this in this deck that don't really provide disruption, but provide a little bit more of kind of a utility package or allow you to be a little bit trickier or gets or grind out some advantage. And and one of those cards, like we mentioned, is phantasmal image. So a lot of people think that this is kind of the best card in the deck. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting card to play. Phantasmal Image, I think, is actually a really hard card to play in some it's, ways. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. for one colorless and a blue, it comes into play and copies any creature on the board, including something on your opponent's battlefield. And that's kind of the key to using this card. I forget about that way. all the time. I forget about uh-huh. that all the time. Is to make sure, I think a lot of people play it where they think, okay, what can I copy that, you know, can I copy a Reflector Mage again? What am I going to do to get out of this bind where my opponent has, you know, a Grizzle Brand on their side of the board or something gigantic? Well, you can just copy what they have on their side of the board and then you get their Worm Coil engine instead. And so it's just something to keep in mind with Phantasmal Image. Yeah, I mean, it's what makes it so powerful, I think, is just the flexibility. Like you mentioned, Dave, it's like you can copy your Reflector Mage when you need to bounce something, when you need that tempo play. You can copy a Deputy of Detention when you need to exile something on their side of the battlefield. If you need to, you know, you need to pump up your whole team, copy that Thalia's Lieutenant. You can copy Meddling Mage to have more targets. I believe I sent you guys a screenshot. I had five Meddling Mages on the battlefield against the deck <laughs> at one point. That's awesome. Yeah, like, and then just like that example I gave earlier, just having, you know, three meddling mages was ridiculous. Right. And the ability to vial this card in is just such nonsense. The the classic move with this is you can vial it in and copy Thalia's Lieutenant, and then all of a sudden everyone's pumped up by an additional counter, and I have just won so many combat steps because no one is ready for my team to get that much bigger. So one more utility card in the deck is Militia Bugler, a 2-3 Vigilance for 2 and a white. 
And it's ETB allows you to look at the top four cards and select a creature with power two or less. And then you put the rest of the cards on the bottom. So in removal heavy metas, this is a really good way to kind of get you back in the game if it's stalled out. It could potentially refill your hand or at least a card for your hand. It can actually find any creature in humans except Mantis Riders and the occasional Anafenza, which isn't necessarily in every human's deck all the time. So the fail rate of Militia Bugler is fairly low. However, as good as this card is, it's not even an auto-include these days in every human's deck. It's kind of in a flexible space for the strategy. Mm -hmm. I think it was seeing a good amount of play, and then Deputy Attention sort of took it out of its spot. They're both three mana, and yeah. while drawing cards is obviously good, the power of Deputy Attention is just, as we talked about, so very unreal. And they're the same mana cost, so... Yeah, I don't think people saw Deputy Attention coming. You know, no. I, mean, I think people, as soon as it was, as it was created, I think people knew that it would go in this deck, but it's, it's a, I think it's a way better card than anybody thought a creature deck would get in modern anytime soon, just because it widens the ability of permanent types that the deck can deal with main deck. Yeah. So that probably moves us on to like the, the finishers and tribal payoffs. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I think that's something that also sets the deck apart pretty noticeably in that. Its finishers are one mana, two mana, and three mana. There's no, you know, six mana janky lord nonsense here. These are all efficient cards. Yeah. So the first one is Champion of the Parish, which is a card that I have really just enjoyed seeing since my Innistrad Sealed days. So this card's an efficient beater, and the sooner it comes out, the better. So you really want this on probably turn two most of the time. If not turn one. Sure, but I think their, you know, Noble Hierarch, Aether Vile, which will get you shortly, are probably better sure. turn one plays. Yeah, it's not the ideal turn one play, but if you can curve out Champion of the Parish is a perfectly reasonable turn one play. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So as we mentioned, it's a 1-1 one, one for one. Whenever another human enters a battlefield, you put a 1-1 one, one counter on it. So it quickly just turns, you know, into a 3-3, three, three, a 4-4, four, four, especially if you have Thalia's Lieutenant putting counters onto it. It can get very out of control very quickly. Yeah. So I got to do two leagues with humans over this weekend, and... For me, my most immediately obvious misplays had to do with this card, where it was a turn that I got to double spell, and I basically didn't notice it and decided to cast the Meddling Mage or one of the disruptive creatures first instead of playing this first, which is always, almost always the right play. Yeah, I did that once. Once! And I was like, never doing that again. Yeah, I sequenced incorrectly once, and my opponent won the game at one life. And uh... if I had sequenced... Yeah, mm-hmm. Right, and... This deck is very good, but they're like decisions like that are matter so intensely. And yeah. I was like, you know what? I have this whole field of creatures. I misplayed. I'm gonna be fine. Oh, oh, is that a board wipe? Oh, oh my goodness, no. Yeah, yeah. I gotta say, there was a non-zero amount of times I won because I swung for exactly lethal, which goes to show you how important sequencing can be. We're gonna use that word sequence a whole lot. Maybe drink every yeah. time we use it if you want to have a really good time listening to this podcast. More than usual, you mean. Yeah, if you're of legal drinking age. And we, we kind of already talked about Thalia's Lieutenant, which is a you know, big tribal payoff. And one thing I, I do want to mention, because I used it so many times, like I knew this interaction and I was like, well, maybe I'll use it once or twice. I felt like I was using it like once a game. And you get to, it has a little trick with Aether Vial. So when you cast a Thalia's Lieutenant in response to the ETB trigger of putting a 1-1 counter onto everything, you can then Vial in another human and then what that does is that puts a 1-1 counter onto Thalia's Lieutenant because she saw the human come into play. And then as Thalia's Lieutenant resolves and ETBs, then it puts the 1-1 counter onto the human you just filed in. 
So, like I said, I thought that was going to be really edge, but it comes up a ton. Yeah, like we said, that's the ability to get in that one or two points of extra damage that'll matter here. This deck is very good and efficient, but it's not winning by huge margins. You really do need every point you can get. So earlier in the episode, Shane mentioned that the deck has lords, and in my mind, this is as close as the deck gets to what we would consider a traditional lord, since it puts a 1-1 counter on every other human. Yeah, you're right. I, did, I didn't even think about that. It doesn't have a traditional lord. It just has the, the pump lord. Correct. Yeah, which is in a, in a way better in this deck, especially with uh, the counter staying on even if it dies, yeah. and the nonsense with it getting bigger itself and more enter. Nice. So now let's talk about the mana accelerants because the- oh, we need to talk about Mantis Rider. Dave, talk about your buggy boy. But it's just a bug. No, it's the bug. It's not man. a bug. It's the person on the bug. Because it's a human monk. For some reason, he rides the mantis to the fight. He gets off the mantis. He fights and he gets on the mantis and he flies away. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate it. <laughs> human monk, mantis rider, uh, mantis rider. So here's a card I never thought I would see in modern. Me honestly. either. Like that when it came down to it, I still remember, like I mentioned a little bit ago, that first tournament where I was listening to the humans deck and I was like, what's this deck that's winning all the time? What cards are in it? Like trying to reverse engineer from the coverage what was in it. And they were like, Mantis Rider with Noble Hierarch. And I was like, what? There's Mantis Riders in this in this deck? This is incredible. And I was like, man, I can't wait for those to spike so I can sell them. No. No. They're still a dollar. Just a, just a recap. Everybody knows Mantis Rider. He's so popular. But uh, Manus Rider is basically a reprint of a card called Lightning Angel that I don't know if you guys remember from even earlier on. For one mana cheaper. So Lightning Angel was, yeah, Lightning Angel was one colorless, one blue, one white, and one red. And it had the same abilities for a 3-3. And then Manus Rider came along and Manus Rider was red, white, blue, haste, vigilance, flying for a 3-3. Very nice. This was such a great finisher. And there were so many games where I wanted nothing more than to draw this card off the top. Yeah, exactly, Stan. It's one of those things where um, when I was playing the mirror, it's just such a mirror breaker that I had oh, opponents yeah. opponents with blind name, medley, uh, blind name Mantis Rider with their meddling mage. There's definitely a time or two where I was playing its opponent. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm dead here. I don't know what I could rip off the top. This is kind of bad. Oh, Mantis Rider. Oh, I win now. Okay. Like, yeah, it just, it bails you out a lot of situations and flying and haste is quite good. Oh, and vigilance, by the way. So it can block if you need it to. And even in a board stall situation, if you have a noble hierarch sitting there, then you're swinging with a four floor, you know, haste, vigilance, you know, flyer. And that really gets the job done. So one of the main reasons we're talking about the deck this week uh, is that it won uh, Mythic Championship London. And there were some incredible turns with Manus Rider and Eli Loveman that I think it's worth going back and seeing, including one where I believe he had three Noble Hierarchs out in play and attacked with a Mantis, a 6-6 Flying Mantis Rider, which was pretty incredible. So Manus Rider is sort of the perfect cheap finisher for, for uh, humans. Oh, yeah, but the real great. question here is, uh, what's, the, what's the engine that makes this deck go? I believe it's a two-cylinder engine, Dave, because there are, in fact, two cards that really hold it all together. I think this is the stuff that takes this deck from being... And it actually takes several different tribal decks from being just sort of blah to being really powerful. And that would be the combination of Noble Hierarch and Aether Vial as uh, mostly mana acceleration, although, of course, Aether Vial has a ton of different different fringe benefits. Sure. Uh, We can talk about that in a second. But... In case you don't know what Noble Hierarch is, if you aren't you aren't friends, the only green card Dave wants to own, 
Yes, exactly. Uh, so it's the most powerful mana mana bird in modern, right? It is one green for an O one. It has exalted, and it taps for white, blue, or green. So it's like an amped up uh, Llanowar elves. Or when I first saw this card, I was like, oh, it's kind of a less powerful Birds of Paradise. I guess that's pretty good. Uh, no, it's actually yeah. a more powerful Birds of Paradise. The, it is the, ex- the exalted much, much matters better. so much. It's incredible how much the exalted matters. And um, I don't know if they'll ever be able to print a mana, a one mana ramp elf, basically, that is better than this card. I, I don't know what it would take. Yeah, it's like the compromise is that it's a zero one, uh, apparently. Right. But, you know, even Still if it's a one, one, it does do. It does. It does. Exactly. Right. Um, and I think that's that's definitely important. It's a human. It provides ramp. And that's that's really key, of course. Uh, I have a little bit of Hierarch fun trivia. Ensnaring Bridge is a card that you will see bringing against you and your humans and is pretty popular right now. Noble Hierarch can swing and get under it even if they have zero cards in hand because the exalted trigger goes on after it attacks. Yeah. So it attacks with zero power and then gets more power after the trigger. What if they have negative one cards in hand? How does that That's work? not... See me after class, Dave. Okay. <laughs> But I think the the real tricksy thing, like you said, Dave, is Aether Vial, right? Aether Vial lets you do a number of powerful and interesting things. Like, you know, of course, first lets you cheat, cheat on mana. You can put creatures in the play without tapping your lands to do so. And you don't even, you know, you're not even casting them. And so they're simply put into play. And so that avoids counter spells. Right, and so when you activate Aether Vial, they can respond to you activating it, but not putting the actual creature into play. Yeah. So you tap it and say, I'm activating Vial. Do you want to do anything? Okay, here's a meddling mage, and this is what it's naming. Yeah, that's the wild thing. Is Yeah, it's like they don't even know you're, cast, you're, you're putting meddling mage into play. They just right. see that I'm activating Aether Vial. They're like, and it's on two, and they're like, okay. And they're like, meddling mage, naming lightning bolt. You're like, no. <laughs> And that, that kind of gets to the next point, right, Zach? Which is the flashing and creatures at instant speed. And so yep. this this lets you do all sorts of crazy mid-combat tricks, end-of-turn shenanigans, really sneaking some wins in there. It's almost like a, a mixture of a word jumble and a choose-your-own-adventure with this. Because there's <laughs> so many... Seriously, there's so many little hidden interactions. We mentioned the Thalia's Lieutenant one, but there's so much stuff you can do here. And there's so many fringe hidden interactions with the deck that it's... Aether Vial is such an integral part of this deck, and trying to leave it on two or three is a really hard choice to make sometimes. Oh, yeah. It's definitely super hard. Like Because every, every turn on your upkeep, you have to make a decision, and that's before you draw your card, right? So am I going to add a counter to this or keep it where it is? And so you have to look at your hand. You know, you see what you might want to vial in that you already have. You look at your mana. You see what can I cast with the mana I have in play. You know, do I want to leave it on two for these two CMC creatures I have? Do I put it up to three to hopefully top deck this mana strider and reflector mage I really want to draw, but I only have two lands in play, so I couldn't cast them if I draw them. That's the kind of stuff I kept it to think about all the time. So this is another card that really forces you to think about sequencing a lot, especially your turn one play. And as I was doing Leagues with Humans, I did some experiments on whether I would want to ever cast a turn one Aether Vial over a turn one Noble Hierarch. And I found that that was almost always the wrong decision if I had to choose between the two. Since the obvious answer is Noble Hierarch really accelerates you on your curve and lets you play three drops in turn two, Aether Vial can sometimes take you a turn back and prevent you from basically accelerating out creatures while setting you up 
just to cast two spells per turn later on. Yeah, I mean, I think that, from my experience from playing Bant Spirits, that's a really difficult Mm -hmm. decision, right? Just because it really depends on the cards that you have in your hand. If you have a one-drop and a two-drop outside of Noble Hierarch, or even including Noble Hierarch, I think sometimes I would probably drop Aether Vile on turn one, so I could go next turn Vile in the one-drop, then cast the two-drop with natural mana. Mm -hmm. Um I think it's hard, but I do think that when you when you say that, you kind of hit on one of the inherent tensions of this particular powerful combination, and that is drawing these tar- cards together is often problematic and makes your hands feel like they're not very powerful. If you have a hand that has, you know, if you have to mulligan and you draw into a hand that has an Aether Vial and a Noble Hierarch and only three spells, say, if you have to mull down to five for some reason, you know, that can be really, really rough to do. I think that these are both super powerful cards that typical of most things that mostly do mana ramp, they um, they really power down late in the game, and so they make for really bad top decks as well. And so um, both, both you know, most tribal decks have a way to kind of work around drawing these late, whether it's through something like Militia Bugler, where you try to like filter through your deck or something like Collected Company in the case of Spirits. I think while these are really powerful, they can be really frustrating to play with because you feel like you draw them at the wrong time. That's that's always the issue with playing Noble Hierarch and Aether Vial is, you know, one, they're they're terrible late game, two, the they kind of they mildly conflict with one another, but the power that they bring, you know, early on and you know into the mid game is so valuable that you have to run them because they're just they're just so bonkers good sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think Aether Vial is really what kind of takes Reflector Mage and Deputy to Detention oh, yes. and breaks them in half. Because yeah. I mean, those are good cards, but they're great cards with the ability to flash them in sometimes. And I think those cards in particular are perhaps the corner cases when you want to play the Aether Vial before a Noble Hierarch on turn one. Just because being able to flash in those cards as quickly as possible can give you reach that Noble Hierarch doesn't. Yeah, and even if you're not getting the you know very quick reach, I think that you you're able to do so many interesting things in combat with cards like that. And it really makes it challenging for the opponent to play against you when you have one or two cards in hand and Aether Vial on three, they really have to be careful about uh, how they attack into you, how they block when you're, when, 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 when you're attacking into them. And it really can give the opponent fits because of that instant speed bounce, that instant speed exile, that instant speed uh, pump from the Thalia's Lieutenant, and you know or let alone if you have a phantasmal image as well you can you can do so much even with it on two yeah so i think we've done a good job going over the core of the deck sure here so just as a little bit of a recap it's a tribal deck right so there's playoffs that pay you for playing humans there are also a really good suite of humans cards that feed into the payoffs that have disruptive abilities as well, as well, right? So you get this powerful synergy of I can make really big creatures and I can get creatures that act as spells and can, can disrupt what your game plan is. On top of that, there's cards that provide a little bit of card advantage or a little bit of card selection sort of in the way that uh, sort of what Phantasmal Image does where it lets you double up on effects that you already have around that you really wish like you had another one of those of. Mm-hmm. And it's all tied together by the engine that is Noble Hierarch and, and Aether Vial. So this is a template for decks that we've seen in Modern a number of different times, right? So when I first started playing playing Modern back towards the beginning of the format, you know, one of the first decks that hit big with, with Aether Violin in particular was, um, was Merfolk, mm-hmm. right? 
I think if you look at the tribal decks that are good and that are actually competitive, you know, why why do we think that uh, humans is the deck that stands out above those other decks right now, above other Aether Vial decks, above other tribal decks at the moment? So let's talk a little bit about other tribal decks that um, we think that humans does a better job of. One in particular that some of us have experience playing is Spirits. Sure. I have loved playing some Spirits, some spooky boys and girls from time to time. And, like, I mean, really, the play patterns seem similar, right? Like, you want to play your low-costed threats. You want to put the clock on the opponent. And while you're doing that, you want to disrupt them with your disruptive cards to keep them off their game plan, right? You often see builds that are sort of hybrid-y between the two. So when Spirits was kind of coming together, you know, we've talked about it in the past, but the thing that brought Spirits together really was a second Lord, right? They they had one Lord and Drogskull Captain, and then along came uh, Pizza Phantom, and it turned into a whole kind of stew on top of that. I call him hot and ready. Hot and ready. He is hot and ready. Yeah. <laughs> Pizza boy. The uh, the thing is, at the time that, that before that, when people were trying to play blue-white spirits, people were trying things like like Thalia and the main deck of some quantity to do a little bit, steal a little bit of the human's kind of disruptive mojo. But it's definitely evolved into a different deck from there. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference, Shane? You know, some visible, obvious differences is, you know, Bant Spirits gets the benefit of having the evasive threats. They all fly. So it's super appealing, right? Like if if all of your creatures are large, flying, disruptive, then that's going to get the job done in the air really easily. I kind of referenced this earlier, and I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say about this is I see humans as this aggressive, disruptive deck. So it uses cards like Kite Sail Freebooter, meddling mage it's able to run the main deck thalias and then spirits is more of a reactive deck so it has to use things like you know counter spell on a body with like the spell quellers it has a sideboard counter spells um, it kind of relies on sort of the, the hexproof granting lords and thing and, and and selfless spirit to sort of have that reactiveness rather than the proactiveness of humans mausoleum wander another counter spell on a body yeah yeah I think that really touches on the difference in the deck is that spirits have ways to protect against board wipes. They can counter it, they can make their creatures indestructible, etc. But humans don't, and they really don't have card advantage either, beyond the uh, one militia bugler, one to two. So humans can name Supreme Verdict with Meddling Mage. That was the main okay. tactics going on there. Yeah. But like you said, when, when Miracles got good, it was tough for either... It was, it, you know, humans kind of got better because they could just name Terminus and then... It got different because Blue White Control started running different Wraths, and so... Yeah, that's why they started running, like, Singleton Wrath of Gods. When you know Meddling Mage is in a meta, you can definitely mess with it and play around. Like I said, you have to start thinking how many copies of a card is your opponent running when you're playing Meddling Mage. And if they're thinking on that level two where, I know you're playing Meddling Mage, so I'm running four different Singleton board wipes. Yeah, but to get back on that, the aggressive disruption thing, I just think that that is a stronger strategy to have in Modern. You know, it's more fitting with the way that modern's playing, especially right now. You know, the the human player is able to play out their hand while disrupting the opponent's game plan, while spirits frequently has to sort of sit back and try to play this sort of controlling game plan. So they're not able to like dump their hand and play their selfless spirit, excuse me, and play their spell queller because they want to be able to counter something with a spell queller. Well, you can play your uh, kite sail freebooter to the board. Uh, doing your dis- preemptive disruption rather than waiting for your opponent to cast something. 
But how is that different from Reflector Mage or Deputy of Detention, which are likewise creatures that you don't really want to play until your opponent has presented a threat? Well, your opponent's going to be playing a lot more threats than you can then react to. That's a different kind of reaction. So I think like you know, you're reacting to something on the board, and then you're providing a disruption that lasts a whole turn, rather than saying like, you know, I need you to cast something that I want to counter and consider valuable at a counter. Yeah, I, I think the best way to think about it is the window of interaction you have. So for spirits, it's just when that spells in the stack, like Shane's saying. But with humans, you don't have you can give them a turn or two if you really want to, right? So they play that thing and you hate it, but oh, I'd rather get down my lord and then remove it yes, as opposed to yeah. anything else. While with spirits, it's either I interact with it now or I don't at all. That's a very important point. I did not think about Zach. That I think that that gets to the the core of it too, right? Where you know you can say you know right now. I don't really care about this creature on the other side. They're probably going to be sitting back and blocking with it. I can build my board out, and then I can cast my Reflector Mage whenever I see it as important. But you can't really do that with a Spell Queller, for instance. Um, One of the things that I like, too, that you mentioned, Zach, is that I think Spirits does handle removal a little bit better because it has things like Selfless Spirit. It has a Drog Skull Captain, which grants Hexproof to your entire team. And so that's really important as well. It has Mausoleum Wanderer. It has Spell Queller. Yes. And also frequently I I find the bodies of spirits, like the bodies across the board can get bigger than all of the bodies in humans. So like, you know, when you have three lords out and a lot of the spirits have pretty big toughness. So like you have like, you know, spirits with five toughness and anger of the gods isn't going to kill your team. Ain't that the truth? So that's good too. So you know, I do think, though, that asking questions in modern is almost always better than trying to provide answers. But that's Oh, just we kind know of, you think that. that. Yes, you know I think that. <laughs> we come back to this like every week with you. But the listeners <laughs> haven't heard Shane say this nearly as often as we have, which has been daily for the last now. four years. It's, it's my refrain. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's my signature in my work email. <laughs> yeah. I, I gotta say, I think it's I think it's tough to say that it is, that aggro disruption is the right place to be in modern period. I think it definitely feels like it's the right place to be in modern right now. Yeah. There's yeah. other metagames where having the card advantage that Spirits has is is really important or having yes. the resiliency to removal is really important. I just don't yes. think it's this moment. In my in my mind, humans can be vulnerable to removal and sweeper decks and a control meta. And I'm starting to get the sense that that's when spirits gets better. So when humans gets a little worse because of too much control, spirits can kind of fill in that gap by having answers to the control decks. Yeah, I agree with you, Stan. And I think one of the big reasons that spirits did have that like somewhat short heyday where it was clearly tier one you know is because it's able to play some of the powerful white sideboard cards especially um, while humans because it doesn't have enough colored mana it can't run the variety of sideboard cards that yeah. one might want so you're able to play things like rest in peace like stony silence so you know when dredge gets creeping chill and kci is everywhere being able to run those cards in multiples of three or something like that really can hose those tier one decks and allow you to succeed. And also, I agree. Yeah, the the in the removal in the removal heavy meta game for the reasons we talked about earlier, spirits can be stronger there too. I think. Yeah, I think it's funny. In my mind, I kind of feel like these are one deck, like, and it's just sort of like different configure, like tweaking your seventy five for yeah. for the for the <laughs> meta game. You know, it's it's like one giant pool of cards that if you are a person who loves to play Aether Vial, like a, a deck that's built around Aether Vial and Noble Hierarch 
they're potentially options you can have. Now, we'll have a dive down someday. In the f- Don't worry, Spirits players. We will have a dive down about Spirits at some point in the future. Oh, because yeah. Because they are really separate decks. But they're certainly kind of, if I was someone who was comfortable with one, I would feel pretty good about porting over to the other if I needed the other suite of cards in a given in a given time. Yeah, I will say that testing humans on Magic Online did really make me miss playing decks like this because I have played some banned spirits in my day and I was like, man, I want to go back to having to think a lot about, you know, my sequencing, thinking about responding to my opponent, you know, and, and being able to just sort of have an aggressive disruptive game plan is really fun. So let's talk about how to be a human. We're all born with it, but it's trickier than it may seem. <laughs> just like real life. It's my pitch for my three camera CBS comedy coming up. How to be a human. Yeah, I'll, I'll put it out there. Going into these leagues, I thought I knew how humans works. This should be a couple easy trophies, and it was a cruel ultimatum when, in fact, playing humans is really hard and the mistakes are so punishing. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, it's really hard to play. You know, like we talked about those sequencing decisions at every point of the game, you know. You have you have so many options at so many points in the game. You know, do you want to save that Thalia's lieutenant until your board's built out and then pump your whole team, or do you want to cast it now so that it gets really big later? Do I you know, want to reflector mage at opposing creature? Do I want to deputy detention it? Do I name Ugin or Oblivion Stone with my meddling mage? What do I want to copy with this phantasmal image? You know, I didn't really realize the level of mastery required to be good at the deck. Like I, I routinely felt and knew I was just making all sorts of small mistakes that added up to be a significant drawback in my win percentage. Yeah, not even a question. As we mentioned, the deck is very powerful, but it doesn't play itself. It really doesn't. No. And it has all this raw energy, but it's up to you to really harness that and make the best decisions. As we were talking about earlier, there are games where you win by exact, and there are games where you missed a ball one counter somewhere, and now they're going to win at one life. Yeah, so what what did you what did you guys think about the difficulty? I mean, like I thought it was quite hard. Stan, what do you think? Yeah, I'm with you. There was definitely a non-zero amount of games I lost just because I sequenced quite poorly and played the wrong creature on the wrong turn or named the wrong creature type with one of my lands or maybe yes. even weird sideboarding decisions like forgetting that Gadok Teague only affects non-creature spells, etc. Yeah. With the with the mana, I did that more times than I am really comfortable admitting where it's like, you know, I have, I have a land naming humans, but then I have, you know, do I need to name humans with a second land? Should I name wizard? You know, should, illusion. You know, yeah. Should I name illusion? Druid. Yeah. Advisor. So it's like oh. when, you know, when, when you have, you know, when you have a, the, the creature, the creature land, ancient ziggurat, that re- I was I realized quickly how important having that on the battlefield is is because then you're not tied to a land that names a creature type, and so that that proved to be more valuable than I anticipated. But yeah, like really looking at your mana base was every time you played a new land was super important because you had to think about well, am I even going to be able to cast this deputy of detention or this phantasmal image? Right, and there are times where. I had a Manus Rider in hand, so I would play three lands and name human to play it, and then along the way you draw Deputy Detention. And two of those lands cannot produce colored mana for Deputy Detention, because he is not a human. Yeah, which is definitely a strain on the mana base, but the power yeah. of the power of Deputy Detention is really up there. So Just got to violate it in, bro. 
So the takeaway here is there's no necessarily clear, obvious heuristics that you have to remember when playing humans. You just have to play. No. You just have to pay very close attention to the order you're casting spells, what's happening on the board, what creature types you're naming with your lands, and make the best decisions that you can with the information that you have before you. Yeah, it really made me respect the deck more and the people who are very good with it. It's it's definitely one of the, I think, the most flexibly powerful decks that I've played in Modern. And for that flexible power, you have to pay the price of learning the deck very well. Yeah. Uh, I think that this is a deck that deeply punishes you if you're trying to go on a sort of autopilot mode. You really have to be fully logged in, and you can't sort of go, oh, typically I do this. No, you have to analyze each situation as unique. And you can learn overall lessons, but you can't port over, oh, when I see this, do this. You have to be really fully logged in, and if you sort of take a back seat, this deck is not going to hold your hand along the way. Mm -hmm. So one thing I've heard about humans a lot is that you should mulligan any hand that doesn't have a one drop Mm. in it. Makes sense to me. What do you guys think about that? And did you think about that when you were playing? Did you try it? And is that a thing you think you would do? I think that's generally true. And I had one game where I kept no one drops, but I had a nice curve of two and three drops. And I don't know if that was the variance of the game, but it wasn't good enough. I didn't feel like having either the acceleration of a Noble Hierarch, the extra point of damage from the Exalted Triggers, or being able to double spell with Aether Vials is a lot of what makes this deck pack a ton of punch and give some surprise factor. Yeah, my rule of thumb when mulliganing for this deck was if my opening seven did not have Aether Vial or Noble Hierarch, I put it back to try to get them. Even if it had a... Champion mm. of the Parish. I would put that back because I thought those cards were that important to the plan. Wow. wow. Yeah, I actually kind of think that when people say the one drop thing, they mean Aether Vial and Noble Hierarch and not really Champion of the Parish. But because I think you're right, it's not explosive enough without yeah. it. I mean, I think it depends on maybe what your follow ups are. Like if you're able to really disrupt your opponent, like if you're going two drop Kite Sail into maybe an, a meddling mage or a phantasmal image where you can really, you know, trip them up, then maybe that might be good enough. But yeah, I, I think that's really important that you know, your game plan is to be an aggressive disruptive deck. So if you're not putting stuff onto the battlefield and you know, cheating on mana and able and getting out ahead of them, then you're not really on the game plan of your deck at all. Zach, if you're six card hand had a champion of the parish would you still go to five to try to find a noble or an aether vial that one's hard to have a heuristic for it's a really good question i think it would depend on what lands i had and if i had a basic in there alongside a land that can name a creature i think i would because then i'm good for the rest of the game in terms of mana fixing and other issues but i'd be hesitant i i think i would just because that five is often so brutal without the london mulligan yeah but it's, it's hard to say. I, I, I'm leaning towards yes. So we kind of talked a little bit about some of the weaknesses of humans earlier, but how do you guys think people should try to beat humans? So we've mentioned it, and just say it again, board wipes. They're so good against this deck. This deck has a really hard time refilling the gas tank after it empties it, and being able to anger the gods, day of judgment, wrath of god, damnation, what have you away their board isn't always a win, but it's incredibly hard for a humans player to come back from that. Yeah, in general, my advice for beating humans is my advice for all modern players, which is just play red, because Lightning Bolt, Lightning Helix, even a Braid, a a true all-star against humans, since it gets both a creature and an Aether Vial. 
but I found that the deck was quite vulnerable to red removal in general, and that's been my experience playing against it as well. Stan, why do you think you're saying red removal rather than unconditional black removal or white removal? Like, I feel like the, the creatures can grow out of red removal range. Sure. I mean, you can have red removal early enough to do it. Even a gut shot is sometimes good enough, I found. I, I, I like gut shot quite a bit against humans, even. Red removal also goes to the face. So I have had games where I pick off their creatures over time, and then I can start you know, winning the game by using Bolt to close it out. But you are right that Fatal Push, Assassin's Trophy... I mean, if you're like Grixis Control and playing Terminate or Dreadboard, those are all very good cards, and removal in general yeah. is how you beat this deck. I mean, I think Jund is a deck that actually probably has a pretty good matchup against oh, yeah. humans because it is a card advantage plus removal deck that kind of wins creature combat, and that's just sort of feels like the type of deck that would be pretty good against this in general. I played against Jund, and it was really hard, and I lost. Though I did beat The Rock. I think because the rock didn't have quite as much removal as Jun did. I, I want to touch on Anger of the Gods real quick before we leave this topic. Yeah, more red removal. If you've listened to this podcast before, you might know that I'm a fan of this card. So I think it's very good, and you have to be willing to play it even if you think it's suboptimal early game. Because like we said, they can grow bigger. So I think it's worth it playing in Anger of the Gods and hitting just a Noble Hierarch and one other card as opposed to waiting and all of a sudden they're three fours. Because I've played that game where it's, oh, I, I want to get more value, I'll hold it. Oh, they're too big now. I can't cast this anymore. Like, this is a dead card in my hand and I made a foolish choice and I'm going to lose now. So even if you're just getting a two for one or honestly, even sometimes a one for one, it's worth it as long as you're getting the right card with it. Yeah, humans yeah. is a deck you can't really wait against. Exactly. So a card that I have found with my personal build and my playstyle and everything to be very powerful and a card that I think might be seeing more play with Karn the Great Creator is Torpor Orb. So Torpor Orb is a two-mana artifact. Creatures entering the battlefield don't cause abilities to trigger. So this not only stops their own enter the battlefield effect, but anything else that would trigger from end of the battlefield effect. So this is stopping Kitesail Freebooter, this is stopping the Alex Lieutenant from putting counters on itself or other creatures, etc. Honestly, when this card's on the battlefield, the current builds don't have any way to remove it, because the way they destroy artifacts and enchantments is mm. Night of Autumn, which is an ETB effect. So if you can get this down early enough, there's nothing they can do about it. I've gotten it down turn one versus humans, and they just scooped. They have no way out of it at that point. Even their best case scenario is playing Mantis Riders and trying to swing in, but in decks that are running this, you have ways to deal with that. So I think if you have a way to search up a Torpor via Karn or a way to get it in fast, I think it's worth bringing in against this deck. So just as a, a spicy alt to Torpor Orb, I've played Takali Honor Guard against sure. humans here and there as well, uh, decks that can run white creatures in uh, uh, Eldrazi lists, basically, and it is uh, equally good because they have pretty hard time removing a specific creature if they want to. Yeah, they really have to have Dismember at that point because they can't hit it with Attention or Reflector Mage because those are under the battlefield effects. Right. Yeah, so I think the last effective way to fight against humans is attacking their mana base. Oh, yeah. It's one of the Dive Down's favorite cards. That's right, Blood Moon. Turning all of their Ooh. lands, all of their non-basic lands into mountains almost locks them out. And I have had a lot of games where I've cast a Blood Moon to turn all their lands into mountains and an Abrade to destroy their Aether Vial, and they're basically out of options. Oh, yeah. I've, con I've, conceded, I've, I've conceded to do a Blood Moon. Yeah. Likewise, Field of Ruin is quite good. 
Um, and, and in a similar regard, Path to Exile are quite good because Humans only really runs like two basics generally. At least I did, and a lot of the lists I've seen online only run about one or two. So yep. you can get to the point where they run out of basics to fetch. So once you start Field of Ruining them, they don't have anything to get to balance the Field of Ruin effect. Same with Path yeah. to Exile. And we should be clear, they don't run fetch lands either. It's only fetching for, off of Field of Ruin or Path to Exile that they can do. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And I've been there where they feel to ruin my uh, Cavender Souls, and I go, oh, that's fine. Oh, my island's in my hand and my planes is on the battlefield. Ah, failed to find. Yeah, for sure. You just got strip mined. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A strip mine and I shuffled my library. The worst thing you could do in modern. <laughs> so how are you supposed to beat humans? Let's talk about how humans just kind of try to shore up their matchup against you. Uh, they're almost always going to be running a few damping sphere these days. You know, really useful against Tron, the occasional you know, combo deck. Right now, three or four Oriok Champion is very popular inclusion. Um, you know, it can't be removed by red or black spells. It can block red and black creatures all day. You get that incidental life gain, so it's pretty useful against mid range decks, against burn, against dredge. Yeah, I brought it in against Burn, and they path exiled it, and I got my island, and that helped me cast my spells. So pretty good in that situation. I mean, Grixis Death Shadow, it's good against because it blocks Death Shadow and Gurmag Angler. Yeah, for Absolutely sure. does. You know, they might have some more Deputy of Detention. They might have some Dismember for opposing creature decks. Militia Buglers to shore up those grindy matchups. We mentioned this earlier, Night of Autumn. It's not a human, but it's flexible. It's definitely castable in the deck. It can, you know, be a beater, handle an artifact or enchantment, gain you some life. For, uh, for Night of Autumn, it's worth noting in that if it's going to be an aggressive matchup, they might bring it in to try to race you, either as a big beater or to gain that four life that'll uh, put him ahead. Another card that uh, is it was seeing some play and maybe is falling out of favor. That, that's a contention. But Anafens of the Foremost is was was and is very popular. So that's a three mana, another three three, and it prevents cards from going to the graveyard. Essentially, good against Phoenix. Yeah, uh, if yes, Phoenix indeed. actually goes down some and Tron becomes more popular, then Anafens will probably go. But as long as you're going to face a bunch of graveyard decks, yeah, it's a great card to have. Yeah, criminally underplayed Dredge. <laughs> People don't play it enough. <laughs> Why don't people play Dredge? That was my favorite part of Zip not being here, you guys, by the way. <laughs> oh, we knew as it was happening that it Zip would be. Bop, 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 play Dredge. Dredge. <laughs> oh, baby, I hear the Dredge a calling. <laughs> Do you hear the Dredge man and not? Bloodgast and uh, prized amalgam. We're living it up to Dredge. <laughs> Don't waste another minute on your drawing. Dredge just wants to have fun. Oh, Dredge just wants to have fun. I cannot wait until we put out this podcast on vinyl so all of our songs sound extra warm. <laughs> all right. Um, another card I like is uh, Sin Collector. It's a great way to handle opposing you know, instant and sorcery heavy decks. And it exiles one of those on ETB, but then it never even comes back, even if the Sync Collector right. is removed. I got to exile a Nexus of Fate, and let me tell you how very good that felt. Wow, well done. Yeah. Zach, you were running some Is It Static Casters, weren't you? I was, and I particularly like this card right now. I was running two in my side, and my results weren't terrific. I finished uh, one League 4 1 and 2 3 2. Oh, not terrific at all, no. <laughs> they well, seem good. I mean, it's not 5 0. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I feel like the Staticaster really helped there. There were times when it could come down, and my favorite was when I got to kill two Steel Overseers with it. And that normally doesn't... Yeah, my opponent played a little aggressively, and I was heavily rewarded. There was some incredible sequence in uh, in the Mythic Championships where Eli Loveman had one Is it Staticaster out against... I think it was in the finals against Affinity. Yes, it was. And he was just holding down the board, and then he played a Phantasmal Image and named is it Staticaster? So he had two Staticasters out, and it was just kind of like over. What do you? I've seen Whirler Rogue show up, guys. What mm-hmm. is that doing? Is that just like for incidental value? I'm not sure. I did not play it in my sideboard. I brought it into the mirror. I think it's for unblockability. Is what you want it for? Is it something that you can build up counters on and then and then attack in? with uh, someone who can block flyers, maybe, or if you just want an extra evasive threat. Okay. I mean, you can also, with a Noble Hierarch and a Whirler Rogue out, you can, they're tutus, essentially, so you can get some some value out of just that as well. Sure. It's probably good against uh, mid-range decks that just have one-for-one removal. Yeah. You can you can tap an Aether Vial to be one of the unblockable triggers, so there's, there's a bunch of ways to do it. Yeah, a couple more cards are Gadok Teague which I consider very useful against control decks, especially blue-white control, with a Gadok Teague on the board plus a meddling mage naming Pat to Exile. It almost feels like a soft lock against control decks. Oh, yeah. No Jace, no Cryptic, no Teferi. No Wraths. It even gets around Terminus. It's not countering. You just can't play it. Likewise, Kambal, Console of Allocation. He's another great tool to use against Decks like Storm, decks like Is It Phoenix, I want to cast a lot of spells in a single turn and punish the spell's opponent for doing that. This kind of shows the flexibility of the human sideboard because we named like 12 cards here, right? Right. They're not all going to be in all the sideboards, but there's just a lot of options in the humans and even non-human creature. Galactic's a Kithkin. Yeah, but as we've seen several times, humans doesn't always need to run humans to run a creature. Sure. So what did you guys think about humans? I liked it quite a bit. What, is, what were your guys' thoughts? It was pretty challenging for me. I'd never played an Aether Vial deck before. I don't think I've ever played a deck that was quite so punishing with regard to how you sequence your plays. So I did go in with a lot of confidence because I have experience against the deck and I always thought I knew how it worked. But once I got in there, I did not perform at my best. I do think it's a deck that I could probably learn to play. But I'm not sure it's the, the type of deck I typically love to play. In part because not a lot of non-creature spells, and those are some of my favorite card types. So Yeah, that's a good point. I respect the deck very much. I, I stand by what I said last week, that it's one of the best decks in Modern that kind of comes and goes with the tides of the format. But I don't see myself necessarily doing a ton more leagues with it in the future. So yeah, I found the deck incredibly powerful. Um, I played 15 games on Magic Online with it in leagues, and out of the I uh, won 10, lost five. Out of the five I lost, I only feel like one of them was due to you know luck or happen chance, and I feel like the other four were on me. And if I had played better and not made the misplays, I think I could have had them. This deck seems like it has such a high skill level that. It's powerful. I'm not going to buy these pieces. I don't know if I'm going to rent it online again, even because it has like such that such a high skill cap. But it's real. It's real and it's powerful. And I feel like I understand it and respect it a little bit more. I ran a couple leagues as well. I went uh, six and four with it, which is you know perfectly good. I'm happy with that. A couple free rolls, but yeah, it was a blast. Like you know, a, a long time ago, early listeners might remember me talking about how fun I thought Spirits was, and Humans was equally fun for me. Um, there's just 
so much to think about, and a lot of the decks I've been playing recently, like Tron and Dredge, just honestly, you're just kind of saying, did I put the pieces together that I needed, and did my engine work? And Humans is nothing like that at all. You know, you you are the engine. Your brain is the engine, and your ability to you know draw into the cards that you want and play them in the most powerful way. And I really think that, like Zach said, that humans does have a high skill ceiling, and it capitalizes on the skill of the pilot. And that's one of the reasons I think that you know good players do well with it. Wow, guys, what a dive down! I'm excited to never lose to the humans deck ever again, but more excited for Shane to inevitably buy into it one day. Uh, you're probably right. All right, we're going to take another quick break, and when we return, we'll do a wind-down with another listener question. Stay with us. All right, we're excited to do another listener question on this week's wind-down. We always love hearing what our listeners want to know about with the format, and we're always happy to consider the questions that you submit to us. So this week, Alec Lancaster, at Lancaster2124 on Twitter, asked, It seems like decks similar to Blue-White Control pop up on the GP and SCG circuits in smaller quantities despite win rates. Do we think this is because they are challenging to play and often take much longer to finish matches than other decks? Or is it something else? I think basically what Alec is speaking toward, Control seems to do very well at tournaments. Why don't people play it more often? Well, does it seem to do well at tournaments, or does it just have a high win rate when we look at the stats, actually? Right? Uh, I don't know. What do, what, do you, what do you think the data indicates, Shane? I mean, I, we have seen the, the Toby Hankey stuff you know, show us that blue-white control especially does have a positive win rate, you know, over 50%. And so that's a good reason. How like, much you over know, 50%? Was it, what, like 54? 53? I think it might have been lower, Yeah. Yeah, but so it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's positive. And, and so, like, you know, any positive win rate deck is good enough to play. So we don't see a lot of people playing it. I think there's a lot of different factors that conspire to make blue-white control not very prevalent at large events. One definitely is uh, taking much longer to finish matches than, than other decks, is that I think people, especially after they go to a couple of tournaments, they kind of know whether they're the people who have the stamina to play eight hours of magic straight, or if they really need those breaks in between where they want to play like a 40 minute round and occasionally have some go to uh, go to time. I think blue eye control, you're basically going to go to time like a lot. You're going to be close to going to time. You need to manage the clock. You need to play fast. You need to think about it. I think that, um, yeah, I think that's a big factor in why it doesn't happen for people who are kind of players like us, the casual spike kind of level. Yeah, to piggyback on what Dave just said with regard to the deck often goes to time, what makes Blue White Control interesting to me that I think often goes unsaid is that winning game one is so critical because it's very typical for game two to go to time. And also there's this weird tension between the experience playing online and playing in paper because if you're playing online and you go to time, you lose. Whereas if you're playing in paper and you go to time, you get five extra turns. And I think because of that, people have less experience practicing blue-white control online since you lose so much when you run out of time doing your thing, even if you've won game one. Dave's talked about this in the podcast before, how he has to consider if he has the time to rent and play a deck because he has a wife and children and has a life outside of Magic Online. 
Yeah. I mean, it is tough. I, I was just imagining one of those scenarios where like I'm racing through my last two or three turns as blue white control because I have a minute on my clock and my opponent has 12 minutes on the clock <laughs> and I'm kind of right. like, can I win? Can I close this out? What can I do? And like, you know, I, I win a good amount of those games because I can get going on Magic Online sometimes, but it is it is frustrating and you get that kind of like, wow, I got to make really complex decisions really fast. And I, right. I think that that's the other thing about, about blue-white control builds is just, you know, the you talk about sequencing in the humans deck, you know, in the dive down, we talked about that a lot. I think the blue eye control is very, very similar in a sense, but the, the ramifications of when you make a wrong decision are much more subtle. You know, you have a much harder time in a control deck and understanding. It takes many, many more reps to understand that, hey, path to exiling a creature in a given situation was the wrong play as opposed to, or I really need to path to exile something right now instead of waiting till I can cast Wrath so that I can, even if I was just going to get that creature later, you know, blah, 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 blah. So there's all these these situations that are really hard to understand if you made the right decision or not. Because one thing that I think is the most frustrating about playing a control deck is, you know, a lot of times for a lot of players, you're just going to feel like you're not doing anything. And then other times you're going to feel like you're doing tons of things and it's really interesting, but there's that definitely back and forth where there are plenty of games where you just kind of draw go. feel like you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Yeah, exactly. Draw go. And some people love that experience because they can really handle it, but you have to know when the right time to move in is when the right time to wait is and all that kind of stuff. Control is the sort of deck where no matter who, no matter whose turn it is, it's sort of your turn really. Because everything you're doing is at instant speed and you're leaving your mana untapped. So you have to be, you can't even check out a little bit no matter what. You have to be fully on your game nonstop because you need to be able to, like, anything your opponent does, you have to think for a second. Like, okay, they're casting this spell. Can this resolve and I can deal with it later? Or is this important or I need to use my resources on it, etc.? So Shane, you're a person that I know typically doesn't play control. And I think a lot of that has to do with what you said earlier where it's better to ask questions than have the answers but sure you know just in our humans conversation you also made it clear that you like the decks that force you to make lots of decisions and reward the people who practice a lot it is is that the difference just like questions versus answers you'd rather think about which question you want to ask rather than wondering which answers you want to consider well, that's, I think that's one reason I do like the spirits and human style decks is they're both asking questions while also saying, you know, I'm going to mess up your plan. You had to beat me, right? So I'm going to take away your answers to my questions at the same time. That's kind of a fun thing uh, for me to be doing in, in the way that I like to play. What you said, though, Stan, does make me think about one of the reasons that I don't like playing blue-white control and control in general is that I think it really requires you to be truly excellent at modern, right? And Why, you thank know, you. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like, I'm, I'm a very average player. Like, I actually, I track my stats. I'm a very average player. So I don't think that I'm above average enough to really be great at a control strategy. And I think to answer Alex's question, why don't more people play it, is that, one, it's challenging to be good at it. And it does, like we talked about, it does take a long time. So this, to take a long time to lose a match is kind of frustrating. And I do think that if more people did casually pick up control, I think we would see it slip back into, you know, maybe a, a 49% deck because so many people who are good at modern are sticking with, you know, control-based strategies, I think. 
Shane, I really think you just hit the nail on the head hard with that one, where it is very bad feeling to play a 49 minute game and then to lose it in the end. And I think that's why burn is so popular and so many people play it. It's just fast and you get your game in and either you win or you lose, but then you can hang out with your friends. You can play your switch, whatever you're doing in between rounds, you can get to it. And if you lost, well, you lost quickly. It's fine. But to grind it out and have it come so close and just, Oh, I should have played Jace there. Shouldn't have I? Yeah. That sort of thing. It just, if, even if it's not as bad, it certainly feels bad. What you guys are talking about, I think, also speaks to an experience I had playing control, which there is some value in knowing when to concede as a control player. And like I said, it's so important to win game one because games take so long. If you start to see the writing on the wall that game one is a wash, you have to get out of there and just try to rush it through game two and or game three to potentially salvage the situation. And a lot of players don't love conceding, even because they think they can always play to their outs when their chances of winning just gradually slip lower and lower. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess just to wrap up this question, I I do think that at some point in the future, I don't know if it's a near future, it, you know, if we had been doing the podcast a year ago, I think we definitely would have done a dive down on terminus, you know, miracles, blue white control in its, in its kind of ascendancy towards the end of summer last year, that would have been a great time to talk about that. I think that we'll def we would definitely do a dive down on blue, on blue white control strategies or the, whatever the blue white control of deck of the moment is at some point in the future. But I still think it's um, something that I wouldn't expect to want to pick up and take to a tournament. I've played blue eye control a bunch over the years in many different formats, standard modern. I used to play something like that back in, you know, all the way at the beginning old school. of yeah, old school, essentially old school. And, um, whenever I think about going to something like a, like a GP, I'm never itching to sleeve up my, my blue eye control that can take it with me. I'd rather do something that has a little bit more, um, ability to manage the game flow. Hutzpah. Mm-hmm. Guys, I just finished building Esper control. So I <laughs> cut it. Shane, cut it from the podcast. Don't let him know. Yeah. Are you taking that to the MCQ at, at uh, magic fest, Madison? No, I'm not going to play Esper there. I'm going to play Is It Phoenix because I have the most reps, most confidence, most comfort with Is It Phoenix. But Esper Control and Grixis Shadow are the decks I want to start playing at the LGS level just so I can start practicing, start having fun with some new strategies, see what these other decks are about. Plus, Esper Control seems so fun. I got I to gotta say, like, I cannot wait to cast Esper Charm on my opponent's draw step when they draw their second card and watch them hate me. I want that. Yeah, that's the stuff. Uh, any chance of you posting your deck list on Twitter before the event? I could do that. I have nothing to hide. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. everybody's going to be scouting you. I hope yeah. you know. So it's look the out. stockiest list of all. I, I, I may consider trying the Chris Caster Apples thought scour combo, practicing that a little bit before Saturday. I'm not sure if I have the time to really get confident with what that's doing, but. Do you have all those noxious revivals? Nah. But how hard will they be to find? Gotta get a hold of those. Maybe I'll borrow yours, Dave. I have one. So Maybe I'll photocopy it. Yeah. <laughs> the Yuya. All right, guys. This was a lot of fun. We should wrap this up. As I mentioned, I am going to be at GP Madison playing in the MCQ on Saturday. So if you hear this before Saturday and you want to say hello, please do. I'd love to meet a fan. I'll have some pins to give out. Maybe we can take a selfie, follow each other on Twitter. I'll sign your cards that I've never cast. It'll be a good time. I love chatting with the listeners. 
If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you listen, uh, er, and if you use iTunes, please leave us a rating and review. Also, remember to join our new Patreon. We've been really excited to get it rolling. We really want to interact with some of the patrons of our show and to reach our stretch goals to make some really cool stuff a reality. So you can find us at patreon.com slash the dive down. Please, please, please go check it out. <laughs> I've never begged for anything. As much as I'm going to beg for this. If nothing more than to get me these sleeves. I want to use these sleeves. So if you support it, I can have this cool thing. <laughs> yeah, I think once people start to see the swag we've designed, that could help push some sales. Because Dave is a very talented designer, and the mock-ups he's made for potential dive down sleeves are out of this world yeah it's it's They're literally it's, space uh, themed and that's yeah. just the first one we got other stuff to make who wants a trucker hat <laughs> email us in who wants an airbrushed trucker hat let's do this trucker hat fanny pack combo yes it's gonna be like the uh P- pitchfork 2003 well i was gonna say the wildwood <laughs> new jersey boardwalk in 1990 when i was a kid I'm thinking camelbacks with a little pouch for your play mat, some space for your deck, and the moisture nozzle is Ball's energy drink. <laughs> that's wow. a, that stuff's good. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send a message there as well. As always, Special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. Until next week, get out there and vile in response! And so their wishboard package in the side. I'm still getting over this cold. Um, oh. <laughs> How about the name? <laughs> <laughs> Don't leave me, Jamie. <laughs> <It's>, no. <laughs> it's, <laughs> <laughs>